welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the show where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin, and Sarah is off this week. So unfortunately for you, it's just me, but we have a great episode for you nonetheless. And we're going to be talking about, I think, the biggest economic story in Canada over the past year or so, and that's inflation. It's something that we deal with every day in our day-to-day life. It's something that we read about all the time. Uh, and we've all become intimately familiar with the headline inflation number. Is it up or is it down? Where is it going? And you know what does that mean for us? But this number is just the tip of an iceberg of a much bigger issue. And I've had a lot of questions about this issue over the past few months. So we're fortunate to have someone here to unpack and explain all of that for us. Uh, Trevor Toome is a professor of economics at the University of Calgary and a research fellow at the School of Public Policy and also a great follow on Twitter. If you're interested in inflation and Canadian economics, highly recommend. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So maybe the place to start here is just what's your top line take on the inflation story in Canada right now? So I think there's really two parts to the inflation story to really understand. The first is that it ramped up really quickly last year, reaching a peak of over 8% in June. And that's not just the highest rate of inflation we've seen since the early 1980s. That acceleration from where we were just a year prior to that, to the over 8% peak, that was the fastest acceleration since the 1950s. So it ramped up to unprecedented levels at unprecedented speed. But since then, so the latter half of last year, it's returned to almost normal on a monthly basis. So it, it, it ramped up high, but it didn't appear to persist. And that's why we're seeing the inflation headline rate kind of tick down each month. Because as we add new, a new month of data, we're going to drop off early months from last year, which were particularly intense in the pace of price increases. And so I think that's kind of broadly how to understand what we're seeing in Canada and around the world, that it rose rapidly to high rates, but it does appear to have completely changed its trajectory since last summer. So I, I definitely want to dive into what the factors are behind those, those shifts. But before we do that, can you talk a bit about how the consumer price index is actually calculated? Like, what are the mechanics behind how StatsCan goes in and puts this number together? That's that's a great question. I guess I should have le- led with that from the start. So, what what this measure is is uh, the average price change from one point in time compared to a year earlier, and the way we average that up is by looking at a wide variety of items, hundreds and hundreds of items are surveyed every month, tracking the price of them and comparing it to where it was a year ago. And then we average it up to get a single measure of overall price changes by looking at how important each of those items is for an individual consumer's overall spending. So if we look at, say, meat, for example, the average... um, and a household is spending about 2% of their overall spending just on meat products. And so meat, uh, over the past year, that has increased in price by 7%. So a 7% increase in that item, 
That's about 2% of your overall basket. And so you multiply those together and then you go to the next product. And so you say, okay, well, uh, food purchased from restaurants, that's about 5% of overall spending. And prices of that item, they're up about 8% compared to a year early or earlier. So you just go item by item, looking at the price change, multiplying it by how important it is for a household's budget. And then you add it all up and that's your overall measure of inflation. And how frequently updated is that basket? Like I can imagine if the price of one thing, let's say the price of meat goes way up, you're going to get substitution of goods and all those numbers. I can imagine just it becoming a very complicated thing to try and get an accurate picture of this. So absolutely. I mean, how how reliable is that? So the way that we do it is to periodically update how important these items are to the average consumer. And so you're right to note that people respond to prices. When they go up, you might shift into something else. Maybe your your budget constraint just forces you to shift into something else. And that means what we're measuring with the CPI is, is how much more costly would it be for you to buy what you bought last year? So StackHen, since the pandemic, has actually accelerated how frequently it updates these shares. So prior to the pandemic hitting, we would do it every two years. We'd survey many households asking detailed questions around what they buy and how they allocate their spending, and then we'd update those shares. But the pandemic hit, and that led to dramatic changes in behavior. You know, Think about no longer purchasing many services where there was a lot of in-person interaction, restaurants, for example, not driving as much, not purchasing as much gasoline. So there were huge changes in the composition of goods and services that people bought. So following that, StatCan is now going to do it on an annual basis. So we're not going to be able to capture month-to-month changes in consumer behavior, but we will be able to capture uh, year-over-year changes. And the U.S. has also done that. They've also stepped it up to updating these shares every year. Okay. And then we also hear about these, I guess, different sub-measures of inflation. So there's the headline inflation, and then we have core inflation. I think the latest one that I keep hearing about from the Fed is like inflation, maybe without energy and housing. And cl- so there's all That's these right. different yeah. metrics. Um why is that? And I guess which one are you know central banks paying the most attention to right now? Well, I, I think Canadians in general and central banks in particular shouldn't pay attention to just one. Right? There's a lot of goods and services out there, and prices of some are going up uh, at very different rates than the prices of others, and price of some goods is actually falling. So it's a very complicated picture to summarize it in a single number and just look at that one single number, the headline CPI, you're going to miss a lot of nuance. You might not fully understand what the the underlying patterns are. So these different measures, like you mentioned, core inflation, this is looking at the average price change of goods excluding energy and food. Now, it's not because we don't care about the price of energy and food. We purchase a lot of both and price changes there matter. But they're also volatile. They go up and down for all sorts of reasons that often reflect, in the case of food and agricultural products, adverse weather developments can lead to big changes in uh, the price of different products. Or we saw avian flu, right? 
literally millions of uh, chicken in North America were affected by this big effect, therefore, on the price of chicken. But that's not something that persists. So if you exclude food and energy, that might give you a more stable picture of where overall inflation is headed. And so it turns out that that is a better predictor of where the overall rate of inflation is going. And for central banks, that's especially important because they need to make decisions about interest rates based on where they think the economy will be a year and a half from now, two years from now, right? It takes a while for their choices to fully work their way through the economy. And, and that kind of, you know, forecasting is really difficult. And so they can't respond to, you know, month to month changes. They need to really think about what's the signal we're getting about where we're headed. Then second, uh, what we're seeing more of now among some is by looking at measures that exclude food and energy, and, and that's, not, that's not new, but also taking out things like mortgage insurance rates. Those are rising uh, quite a bit because central banks are ramping up their interest rates, and mortgage interest is a very important part of many of our uh, household budgets, and so it's something that matters. But it's not something that is seeing a price increase because of some kind of underlying supply and demand factor, right? It's a policy hmm. uh, choice. And just like we wouldn't want to respond to price changes because of, say, enacting the GST, like in the early 90s, that boosted up measured inflation, but it was a policy. It was a one-time thing. Um, and so stripping out the effect of policy choices is also something that is pretty common just to get a sense of what's the underlying economic price pressures that exist there. So there's lots of different ways to cut it. And each different way of cutting it provides you a different perspective, different information. Uh, and so therefore is adding value to our understanding of inflation when you look at them all together. Interesting. So when you say a policy choice, just to follow up on that, you're talking about the policy choice to raise rates? That's right. That's right. So that's that's what's causing mortgage interest rates to rise. And it's not that that doesn't matter, and it's not that this doesn't raise concerns, and in particular equity concerns, right. I guess. This is especially uh, a burden on lower-income households, and so it matters. So abstracting from it in our measure of inflation is to get a better sense of the underlying supply-demand market factors that are driving price changes. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about some of the factors, I guess, that have contributed to that uh, picture that you painted at the the outset. Um, and in particular, I want to get a sense of your view on whether the inflation that we, I guess the inflation we went through uh, and that we're still living through now to a mm -hmm. somewhat more moderate degree, is that a, a macro, is that being driven by macro factors in the economy, like having essentially zero percent interest rates for so long? quantitative easing, you know, maybe pandemic relief is something that people talked a lot about for okay. a time. You don't hear so much about that now. Or is it a micro story about, you know, ships piling up at ports and not enough goods and all that sort of thing? Uh, yes, it's, it's a story that involves a lot of overlapping and interacting causes. And, and any kind of large scale economic shock like this is going to have lots of contributing factors. And so there's there's a little bit of truth in all of the 
uh, the stories that people will focus on. And the political conversation also involves not just fiscal and, and monetary policy and government spending or supply chain disruptions, but also uh, profit margins uh, of corporations, that, that term greedflation, right? So each of these um, sheds light on a, a little bit uh, of what's going on. So let's start with the supply chain disruptions. That's something where uh, the disruptions from the pandemic led to, um, I don't want to say collapse, but a really big shock to global shipping and containers being in the wrong place and difficulty accessing them. The cost of getting them went through the roof. Uh, the volume of goods, the sheer physical volume of goods at various important ports uh, in North America and elsewhere led to delays in, in shipping, and, and that adds costs to shipping a good from point A to point B. So for Canada, things like durable goods, vehicles, household furniture, we import a lot of that. And these are subject to some of those constraints, and that might be a part of why those prices increased. Fiscal policy too, this is something where uh, governments around the world, to varying degrees, transferred money to individuals and businesses to support them through, especially that early phase of the 2020 disruptions. That could have contributed to price increases as well because it facilitated the demand for goods and services by individual households. And anything that increases demand for items will tend to increase the price. I think this is something where we're going to be researching it for decades. You know, people are going to make their careers around understanding all of the different ways that the last few years has affected all sorts of economic outcomes. People still make their careers looking at developments in the Great Depression, right? This is so I don't want to hang my hat on any particular result, right. but there has been some work from the IMF that looks at quantifying the extent to which fiscal supports contributed to inflation just by comparing the experiences across countries in terms of inflation patterns and government income support programs. And it does kind of look like if a government were to have ramped up its income support by something on the order of 10% of GDP, then that would have increased inflation the following year, they estimate by about 0.8 percentage points. That seems, and so in that Canada's seems very case, low. That, I mean, to me, as a, well, a layperson, 0.8% compared to so what we were experiencing. It's certainly not going to get you all the way to the 8% inflation right. that we saw at peak last year. So in Canada's case, the all-in scale of the fiscal support might be able, just based on that estimate, might be able to get you to about a 1.5% boost to inflation. So, so if the inflation rate would have been you know, 3.5%, 4 a little around there, percent higher than target, then uh, fiscal policy would have perhaps been one of the more important contributors to it. But we went all the way to eight. So the fiscal spending is not going to be able to deliver that. And so what does get you all the way up to that high rate is energy prices. Energy is something that we buy a lot of directly for transportation, depending on where you live in Canada, home heating, uh, things like that. And so there's a direct effect on households energy prices rising to the levels that they did at their peak, that alone, just the direct effect added nearly two percentage points to overall measured inflation. So really big, really big effect. Right? That alone bigger than the IMF estimate of the fiscal policy effect. Energy is also used to produce many other goods and services. Right? A lot of things are energy intensive. And interestingly, food is one of these items that has a 
a higher than average level of energy as a cost of input to both produce it on the farm, but also to ship it sometimes great distances. Uh, in Canada's case, like two thirds of our fruits and vegetables are imported, for example. So when fuel prices are high, that adds costs to food. So when you cascades through the supply chain, leading prices in many categories to increase. And some recent estimates from my University of Calgary colleague and I, um, Professor Sonia Chen here, uh, we have a paper that's coming out that that kind of digs into what the full effect of energy might have been for overall inflation. And it kind of de depends on the measure, but it looks like a majority of the reason why inflation accelerated as much as it did through to June of last year is just an energy price story. Really? Yeah. Um, now, that's not new either. We've had energy shocks in the past, like in the 1970s, leading to high inflation. And it's really just because that's it's an important item that we buy directly, and it's just important throughout the supply chain of so many other goods. I guess the question I have that coming from that is, you know, we have this weighted basket of goods, which is we, you know, energy prices could be reflected in gasoline or home heating or that sort of thing. But there's so many ripple effects in a from a commodity like that or a sector mm -hmm. like that that you know you were just talking about does that get captured in any of the data that we're collecting and you know how does how do policymakers respond to these sort of strategic sectors that uh, you know drive prices in so many other parts of the economy so i guess the short answer is that it's it's not directly captured in any of our standard measures because it's really difficult to observe all of these supply chain interconnections, yeah. right? It's pretty easy to include the direct effect of gasoline and home heating because we kind of know how much people are spending on those goods and we can see the prices of them. So the direct effect, no problem at all. But all of the indirect effects through the supply chain, just think about how many you know, literally millions of different products there is all over the world. And to make a product, you need other products as inputs. And maybe you're producing something that uses inputs and what you produce is an input to yet something yeah. else. So it's a really complicated web of all of these feedback loops. And globally speaking, energy, the direct uh, household use of energy is only about 14% of the total. And then you add to that the energy that's embedded in a good that you're consuming. So the energy required to deliver some agricultural product to your, to your home, that's going to add you about 30%. So a little more than half of all energy use is accounted for like two steps up the supply right. chain and beyond. And, and so there, there's different ways of modeling this, uh, different techniques to try and estimate what these cascading effects might be. Uh, but these are just estimates It's um, and, and different methods will yield different results. So it's, so it's really difficult for policymakers to, in real time, um, you know, track what all of these cascading flows are from an energy shock. It's something that researchers are going to uh, deal with years after the fact rather than in real time. Does that, the importance of energy, does that change as the, I guess, broader consumption patterns of people change you know like during the pandemic services were people couldn't really purchase many services so 
a lot of that money flowed into goods, right? And now you hear everyone's traveling and buying all these services that they couldn't get during the pandemic. Um, are those less energy intensive? I guess, how does the composition of that change based on people's behavior or does it change at all? It, it absolutely does uh, in response to changes in people's behavior. Think about gasoline, right? Right now, the weight on gasoline for your typical household, like the share of the budget that it accounts for uh, is about four and a half percent, uh, 4.3, I think, percent. And during uh, 2020, early 2021, it was closer to 3%. So that, I mean, that, so that's a pretty big drop in the, the purchase of that particular item. So uh, those are in response to short-term changes in what people were doing, how much fuel was being used, uh, commuting to work really dropped off. And so that's kind of an understandable shock. But so there's also longer-term changes. Um, we're, a, we're a lot more energy efficient than we were, for example, in the 1970s, right? So the past half century is uh, the vehicles that we drive, the way that we build our homes, the machinery equipment that we use. We're just far less dependent, if you will, on energy now than we were then. And so an energy shock then mattered a lot more in terms of its broader economic effects than, than one uh, now. And then think about how we're shifting away to different types of energy generation. So I'm here in Alberta, and we're really ramping up the extent to which we're producing electricity from solar and wind, ramping down dramatically the extent to which we're using coal, for example. And that's going to change. Therefore, the, the overall exposure of the province to changes in fossil fuel prices in terms of their implications for electricity prices. Think about electric vehicles that are rising in adoption in, in lots of countries. That's going to change the exposure to gasoline price swings in the future. Um, so I think this trend of becoming less and less energy intensive in our consumption will continue. Um, and I think you know policy has a role in terms of nudging things along. You know, when we talk about energy, it just it occurs to me that the one or one of the few tools, I guess that that the central banks have to address inflation are interest rates, right? And higher interest rates, I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, are going to do much to increase the energy supply. It's really just working on on the demand side. Exactly. Um, are there other policy responses other than just interest rates that can be used to deal with inflation that people should be looking at? So I think so. And the way to understand this is to I guess, force ourselves to remember that inflation kind of sounds like an abstract concept, but it's just averaging up a bunch of price changes. So anything that affects the prices of things that we buy is going to, in principle, have an effect on inflation. So the way that monetary policy generally works is through a couple of different channels. They have this one big blunt tool at their disposal, interest rates. And right now we're increasing interest rates, or certainly did a lot last year. I think we'll kind of hold the line through most of this year. And what that does is make it more expensive to borrow and therefore more costly to purchase things that we typically borrow for. Think about residential uh, investments, renovations for your home, vehicle purchases. The, the demand for those tends to fall uh, for understandable reasons when interest rates rise. 
And anything that makes demand fall is going to tend to lower prices. And so that's, that's the way in which it works. But it's not going to affect the price of everything. Think about food. It, it, it turns out that our food purchases are not all that sensitive to interest rates. That's kind of understandable too. It's like, it's a necessity that, um, the amount that we're purchasing is pretty what we call inelastic to, to changes in interest rates. And so it's not going to affect, you know, as much the price of food compared to things like vehicles or materials that are used in construction, things like, things like that. So in addition to just monetary policy, think about government policy more generally. Different governments have responded to inflation in different ways. Alberta provides a good example of a government that's done a lot because it has the luxury of very high resource revenues that it can use in, in different ways. So one thing it did was to cut gas taxes uh, by 13 cents a liter. Ontario did the same, although not by the same amount. And that's something that directly affects the price of gasoline. And so therefore, it directly lowers the measured rate of inflation. Now, there's trade-offs to that policy. You know, Like any policy, there's pros and cons, and it's not something that I would uh, recommend other governments do. But mechanically, it's a policy that certainly does have an effect on the overall uh, measured rate of inflation. More generally, though, I think we can think about what can we do over the longer term to maybe make us less susceptible to this same kind of gawk? And that, I think, needs uh, us to think about flexibility on the supply side of, of various goods and services. You know, port capacity was maybe revealed to be something that uh, we don't have enough of or isn't flexible enough. Or the way that we produce energy means that when there's a big negative energy supply shock, in particular from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's it's very difficult to fill that gap. And so as we uh, think about the future, trying to think about ways that we can be more responsive in the production of important goods and services, and, and governments can have a role there, in particular with infrastructure and um, rolling rolling out stuff like that. Are, are higher interest rates almost counterproductive to that I guess, like longer term solution of expanding supply and building infrastructure? Yeah. Like, are we just setting ourselves up for the next supply shock by making it more expensive to build right now? So it, it certainly does uh, make it more expensive to build right now, for sure. Uh, I think that nothing illustrates your point here better than than housing, right? We have expensive housing in Canada in general. It, it rose pretty rapidly through the pandemic as well, in particular, Vancouver and Toronto. And one way to approach making housing more affordable is to increase the supply of housing. And that's been a priority of many governments now, provincially and uh, federally as well. But what we're seeing with higher interest rates is there's actually been a, a measurable in the data decline in residential investment activity. And that's counterproductive uh, to housing prices. And housing prices too also affect inflation. Rent is in there. Measures of home ownership costs are in there as well. Um, so yeah, there, there's nothing and, and I wouldn't uh, ever want to suggest that interest rates are something that is going to affect inflation without any other consequences for sure. The net effect though, of higher interest rates is that while it makes some things more expensive, it overall tends to lower uh, inflation. We have a lot of experience with 
with this. So it, it makes some things more difficult, more expensive, but on the whole, uh, it will bring down inflation. The question is not whether it will, but at what cost and how quickly. Okay. One thing that I'm curious about is, you know, we've come off of the sort of 9% pace of inflation and it seems to be moderating a little bit. And I think you alluded to one of the reasons behind that at the, the outset, which is just, you know, months from last year dropping off of the, the calculation of that change. Is there uh, any other like structural changes in that metric now? Like, have we already picked the low hanging fruit of reducing inflation by maybe clearing some of these backlogs at the port and having more factories overseas come out of lockdown and ramp up production. Is it going to be harder to deal with the inflation that's still in the system over, say, the next six months or 12 months than it was for the last year? So if we look at the the big driver of what led inflation to rise o- over the past year, as I noted, was energy and energy prices, you know, they were at $120 a barrel plus uh, at their peak last summer, and now we're less than 80. So it's come down quite a bit. And and that's going to have a direct effect, as we've seen. That's the big reason why inflation's fallen from its peak. It's just an energy price story. That's going to gradually also then cascade through the supply chain, lowering the prices of other things as production costs fall. Uh, and so that's something where it really didn't wasn't in response to policy choices is just global energy markets, you know, favorable weather in Europe, for example, leading to less, uh, less use of energy there. Where the pockets of concern remain uh, for me is when I look at the data, I see quite clearly that the, the area where price increases are still quite high and growing is food. And, and that's a really challenging area because it, it's, it's such a large and important share of our overall spending that these price increases matter a lot. And the solution's really difficult. You know, agricultural prices responding to global developments as well. Canada's, you know, a smaller economy, uh, internationally trade exposed. And so it's something where policymakers here also have very little control mm. uh, over the price of, of that item. It's also something that's itself not very responsive, at least historically, to monetary policy. And so it's something where um, it's a big source of concern, not a lot of obvious options uh, for at least a Canadian government to think about addressing it. But if past patterns are any guide, it's also something that's um, got a lot of volatility in it. Prior price increases do not tend to be followed by further price increases. There's ups and downs as there's random positive and negative shocks in that market. So hopefully it's something that doesn't see these price increases continue. Outside of food, uh, the, the biggest driver here over the past few months to overall price increases are, are things that are tied to um, these interest rate increases, things like mortgage rates going up, uh, that price alone, mortgage interest costs rising in Canada over 20% January of this year compared to January of last year. But that again is a, a policy uh, choice that was made. And if interest rates don't rise further through much of this year, then the effect of that on measured inflation will also dissipate. 
when it comes to food inflation, I mean, why, why is that sticking around in the system for a longer period of time than other things? I know you said that it's less sensitive to interest rates than many of these other sectors. Are there other mm-hmm. reasons there or is it just sort of that's the last one that we have to deal with? So there's, there's going to be a few overlapping reasons and the story is going to be different depending on the product that we're talking about as well. So in, in the case of Canada, one important factor is exchange rates. So the, the dollar is actually lower than it usually is, uh, given the type of things that we export when oil prices rise, the dollar tends to rise with it, but we didn't see that. Canada was not alone. Many countries saw their currencies fall relative to the U.S. dollar, typically in times of uncertainty globally, uh, capital flows into more s- relatively safer assets in the U.S., and that tends to increase the value of the U.S. dollar, decrease the value of other currencies. And, and what, why does that matter for food? Well, we import a lot. And when the dollar is low, that makes food prices here domestically higher. So that's a big part of fruits and vegetables because we just import a majority of them. So there's exchange rate factors going on. There's also kind of product specific ones. I mentioned um, the the avian flu issues. That's going to affect poultry prices in a direct way. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine too, for a while, took many uh, large uh, and important crops, uh, disrupted that supply pretty dramatically, um, increasing the price of those items. And so there is, I think of it as kind of a sequence of, uh, transitory shocks, just like continuing to have a string of bad luck Mm -hmm. in that set of, of products that if these negative shocks, uh, don't continue, then prices should, should stabilize, or at least historically, that's what we see. So if the, you know, the health conditions for the, for birds, you know, stabilizes or for poultry, sorry. If the exchange rates kind of start to get back to normal patterns and the global uncertainty is, is resolved, if there's not further disruptions to important producing countries. And I think we, we have seen a lot of attention paid to keeping the, the port of Odessa open, for example. Uh, th- these are factors that would kind of gradually then start to show up in the, in the food price data and then energy prices too. Food is pretty energy intensive as, as a, as an item. And with energy prices coming down quite a bit over the last, um, you know, six, seven months, that's going to start filtering through into the supply chain for agriculture as well. Interesting. Because it's such a top of mind uh, product for people, I think groceries and food is a good place to stay just for a second. Because I'm curious if you, what your perspective is on how do businesses actually pass on higher input mm-hmm. costs to customers like do they basically say and maybe it varies from business to business i don't know you tell me but do they basically For say sure. you know our cost of x is now 10 percent higher so the price gets 10 percent higher or is it a matter of trying to protect profit margins in which case we might be more than 10 percent price increase how does that work mechanically yeah. So, so mechanically, this is going to vary across sectors, uh, primarily because the level of competition varies across sectors. So if we think about a perfectly competitive market where there's lots of producers of a similar item and buyers can just easily switch from one seller to another, 
that tends to keep prices in line with the cost of production and profit margins are just razor thin, basically just providing a a normal rate of return on the capital that was invested in the building. Uh, Sorry, sorry, in the, in the, in the Mm -hmm. business, not building. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, if there's a shock to all of the producer's costs, that'll tend to be fully reflected in price. A 10% increase in cost of production, 10% increase in price, because there's not a lot of other margin to give there. But if you're in a sector where it's far less competitive, maybe dominated by, at the extreme, a single producer, a monopoly situation, for example, then you're going to have costs affecting prices in a very different way. And a 10% increase in costs wouldn't be translated in mechanically to a 10% increase in price. So it does depend on the, the kind of overall structure of the, the sector itself, how cost shocks are passed through to consumers. And then profit margins too are something that we can use in the data to see how things are being passed through. And, and groceries are getting a lot of attention now. It's, it's certainly, it's a relatively competitive sector, not a perfectly competitive one by by any means, of course, and profit margins in that sector, they're higher than they were prior to the pandemic. And and I'm not entirely sure why. So I don't have a good answer for that. But it's something that at least over the past year or two years has been relatively stable. And so there might be an issue there with profit margins uh, rising for reasons that we should be concerned about. And the Competition Bureau federally is currently uh, having an investigation into this. So we'll see what they uh, what they have to say about it. But it, I don't view it as a a meaningful driver of the the year over year inflation that we're seeing right now. Just because if I look at profit margins in most sectors now compared to where they were early last year, they're pretty similar. Uh, outside of commodity producing sectors, you know, energy profit margins through 2022 rose a lot. Um, and that's natural. And that if the global price of the thing you're producing rises, then your profit margins are going to, are going to rise. But outside of energy, mining, petroleum products, overall profit margins, Canada relatively stable. Okay. One thing that the, the Bank of Canada continues to talk about is uh, wages and how that contributes to inflation. And I guess my sense has been that they seem pretty convinced that you can't have inflation within their target with the tightness of the labor market we have now. With so many job vacancies, uh, maybe unemployment needs to be higher too. I don't know about that. Um, but at the same time, like when you look at wage gains for workers, they've been outpaced by inflation too. So there's like, you know, mm-hmm. no real wage gains. Is there any scenario in which workers can get a meaningful wage gain, you know, because of labor market tightness without having this inflation? It just sort of seems like it's this, uh, I guess, treadmill situation where as soon as the labor market gets tight enough, where you're going to see your wages go up, the central bank says, well, now we have an inflation problem. How does that shape out? Yeah, so it's a, it's a complicated area, uh, as I guess all of the issues are as they yeah. touch on inflation here. But what central banks are looking at is an historical 
potential relationship between uh, unemployment rate and overall inflation. And, and the mechanism there is pretty, I think, pretty intuitive. When you have a very tight labor market with low unemployment rates, then you might tend to see wages rise as a result. And labor is just an important input, the most important input into the production of goods and services, especially services. And so changes in the price of that input could very well potentially affect the price of items and therefore inflation. And so the concern is, a, I, I guess, a kind of generic one where, well, if there's labor market tightness, that might be a sign that there's going to be further inflationary pressures. And so it's taken as one piece of information when a central bank is thinking about where the economy might go, where prices might go from here. It's not a, a necessary or mechanical linkage. There's certainly ways where wage changes don't uh, pass through to price changes. I can think of a, a couple examples. One easy one is just productivity. If the amount of goods and services that any given worker can produce uh, goes up and their wages goes up, well, then the unit cost, like the, the unit labor cost, doesn't necessarily change at all. And so whether wage changes are in line with productivity changes is, I think, the more important thing to to look at there. I guess second, um, tight labor market also doesn't necessarily translate into changes in wages. And I think now is a uniquely interesting moment to think about ways that workers are compensated that doesn't uh, go through wage levels. Think about flexible work environments in all sorts of different service mm. sectors. You know, the, biggest, the biggest area of employment growth in Canada by a pretty wide margin recently is professional services. And the extent to which employers can provide for flexible uh, hybrid or remote work structures, for example, this is a way of making a job more attractive, more enjoyable, better working conditions, uh, depending on the individual, it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, that's, that's a form of compensation to a worker that's not necessarily wage gains. And so whether we see a tight labor market, this is going to lead employers to compete for compete for talent and retaining talent, that competition might not take the form of wage gains. Mm. And, and at least when I look at the pace of wage increases in Canada, it's, it's not something where it's rising to levels that I think would lead anyone to be concerned that it's going to lead to further in, inflationary pressures. Um, and, and I guess you, we, you see that at the product level too. Labor-intensive products are not the products that are driving the overall price increase that we're seeing in the CPI. Right. That makes sense. So what's your view of the you know, next 6 to 12 months of where we're headed with, with inflation? Well, if the last six months is any guide to the next six months then inflation will fall, potentially getting closer to normal levels by the summer, maybe even less than 3% by the end of the year. And I say that because uh, this, is a, this is a conditional statement. Like If the next six months <laughs> looks like the last six okay, months, we won't hold who knows to what's going to happen, uh, then the months that were really big contributors to the measure, uh, the, sorry, to the high rate of inflation that we have, that is the first five, six months of last year. And they're going to now start dropping off from the calculation with every new month of data. 
And so if you add a month where the price change is normal and you drop off a month 12 months ago where the price change was abnormally high, then the overall index is going to gradually ratchet down. Now, we won't have dropped fully off those early months until May or June of this year. Um, I say or because June was sort of unusual, but not that bad last year. So once we get to June... Then we'll just have in the calculation 12 months that if the next six or anything like the last six, then they're relatively normal. Um, but energy, food, other uh, shocks, lots of uncertainty out there. And so we could see inflation not uh, decline and we could see it rise or we could see it fall really rapidly. It really does depend on a lot of things that are fundamentally unpredictable. Right. And then economically, uh, I think central banks have started to signal that they're potentially done with their tightening monetary policy. They're going to take some time to let the effect of the past increases work their way through. Uh, and so that'll lead to slower rates of economic growth in lots of countries, uh, but potentially not a recession. So I'm pretty optimistic that, especially in Canada, uh, growth, economic growth will slow and, and already has but won't necessarily contract in any meaningful way. And unemployment, if it rises, won't uh, rise too far. Um, and I guess I say that primarily because what we have in, in Canada's labor market and the U.S. and other places as well is very high levels of vacant jobs. There's a very unusually high level of vacancies, about one open vacant job for every unemployed worker. That's about three to four times uh, more vacancies than we usually have. And so as the economy slows and employers cut back on activity, one mechanism that they can um, adjust is pulling vacancies. They can just not hire. Uh, that's different than large-scale layoffs yes. that you tend to see in a recession. So I think there's there's some scope for shrinking activity, taking some steam out of the labor market that doesn't necessarily mean Rise uh, rises as unemployment. Okay, one last uh, question before I before I let you go here. When we're looking at inflation in other parts of the world, like I think Europe, eurozone inflation came in today or yesterday, and it was eight and a half or something. Or the American inflation rates. How much mm -hmm. should we? Uh, how much should those inform our view of? The inflation situation in Canada? Is it a situation where we could go back into target range while Europe is still at 7% or 8%? Yeah. So, so it's entirely possible that we could. Inflation is generally across the advanced uh, economies correlated. So they're going to rise and fall together. It's also true of emerging uh, market economies as well, because we're subject to similar shocks. Like when energy prices change, that is typically a global development, uh, especially if we're talking about oil. This is something that is a standardized and highly traded commodity. And so its price, uh, when it goes up or down, is felt in economies throughout the world. There are uh, regional energy markets as well. Think about natural gas. This is something where North America has pretty low natural gas prices and its domestic production really satisfying. Uh, the demand for it. Whereas in Europe, uh, their natural gas supply was connected to Russia. So you have a very large supply disruption there. 
And it's very difficult to transport natural gas, right? You need LNG facilities that take quite a bit of time to build both on the export and the import side. And so there you could have price increases for energy that are very different in Europe. And that is indeed what we saw. And most of why Europe has higher inflation than either Canada or the United States. The OECD average, for example, in the latest data is about 9.4%, uh, whereas in Canada, it's less than six. And energy is a big part of that story. There's also unique things in Canada that might be a challenge here that are not the same elsewhere, and that's housing. And this is something where price increases for homes was a driver of inflation, not because we measure homes in the same way, but we don't need to go into the details. But when home prices change, that does have a direct effect on what we measure the cost of home ownership to be. And that's a factor in inflation. And we're seeing that come down a lot too. But where do home prices go from here? Depending on the forecaster, some are thinking that home prices have declined a lot since last year, but the declines might soon be ending and might start to increase again. And that would be a um, something where Canada's housing market patterns are quite different than what we right. see elsewhere. So yeah, there, there's very strong connections between inflation elsewhere and inflation here. Um, it's, and, that, and those connections matter for an economy like Canada that globally speaking is relatively small, but very internationally trade uh, exposed. So a small open economy is going to be affected by developments elsewhere. Okay. Great. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for doing that. That was uh, super interesting. And uh, I feel like I have a much, much clearer handle on the, the issue now. So I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Great to speak with you. Well, that was a super interesting conversation. You know, I, I learned a lot from that and I uh, hope you did as well. I think right off the bat, something that was uh, news to me was that this consumer price index basket of goods is is only updated once a year and was only updated once every two years before. You know, it seems, uh, especially in the times that we're in now, like we could be getting some uh, odd readings on what's actually going on in the economy if we're only updating it once a year, given how people's consumption habits have changed. But uh, just an interesting little fact about how these numbers are actually put together and a reminder that, you know, these metrics like inflation are just numbers that we've come up with to try to get a sense of what's going on in the economy. But they're imperfect representations of reality, which is something that I think is important to keep in mind when reading news about what's happening in our economy that you know, we don't have sort of perfect knowledge of everything that's happening in real time. Some other things that I think are interesting to pull out there was just Trevor's breakdown of what is really contributing to inflation now and how so much of it is a mathematical exercise. Like as, you know, and it makes total sense, the months where we had the most inflation start to drop out of the year over year metric, that headline number is going to go down. And that's something that I don't know if we always think about is that, yeah, this is a, a comparison, right? So it's going to change dramatically based on what numbers actually go into that comparison. Also, the importance of energy. You know, I think this is something that we probably understand intuitively, but, you know, as Trevor was saying, doesn't necessarily get totally captured in the inflation 
data and numbers that we have, you know, it has this ripple effect throughout the economy. And it got me wondering, what are some of the other sectors of the economy where there are ripple, ripple effects like this occurring that could be having an outsized impact on inflation? Uh, wages, I thought was another important topic. You know, it sounded based on that conversation that while the discussion of wages and prices gets a lot of attention in the media, it may not actually be one of the more important factors that's driving uh, price changes right now. And so maybe we can get that soft landing that people have talked about where you get inflation down into target without having a big jump in unemployment or a reduction in people's earnings. And then finally, I think just the question of food prices. That's always fascinating. And I think I, I, I want to do a whole episode on that at some point to dig in deeper. But the fact that Trevor mentioned of how we actually do import a lot of our food is something that, you know, I don't really think about that often. We sort of think of Canada as a food producing country, an agricultural country. And I guess in some commodities we are, but there is a lot of stuff that we import. And so this issue of the value of the loonie is going to have a big impact on what we actually end up paying for groceries at the end of the day. So I think that's a good place to leave it for now. But once again, thank you to Trevor for coming on and explaining all that to us. If you enjoyed that conversation, please do take a minute to subscribe. You can find us in any of your podcast apps by searching for Free Lunch by The Peak. You can also subscribe to our daily business newsletter. That's at readthepeak.com. And we touch on a lot of topics similar to this. I'm on Twitter at Taylor Scollin and follow our guest Trevor Toom on Twitter as well. He's at Trevor Toom. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode of Free Lunch by the Beat.